Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Thursday, February the 8th, 2024. It is currently 2.06 p.m. Central Time, and I am coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. What if I was to tell you that there is a way that you can succeed in your battle against your most stubborn sin? What if I was to tell you there is a way you can succeed in your battle against sin, that you can succeed against sin? If you went to church and the pastor was to, st- was to stand behind the pulpit and say, good morning, everyone. This morning, I'm going to take the word of God and I'm going to show you how you can succeed against your most stubborn sin. I'm going to show you how you can succeed against sin. I need you to be honest right now. What would be the very first thought that would come to your mind? The very first thought. There's the pastor. He's holding a Bible. He's holding a Bible. He lifts it high above his head. And he's like, ladies and gentlemen, this morning from the word of God, I am going to show you how to succeed against sin. Would you get excited? Would you get hopeful? Would you grab your notebook, your pencil, your pen, your marker, your Sharpie, whatever you had, lipstick, whatever, whatever you had handy. And you're like, I'm going to take these notes because the one thing I want to learn is to be, to, to know how to succeed against sin. Or would you be skeptical? Would you be cynical? Would you just kind of start shaking your head like, oh, here we go again. Would you laugh? Would you mumble something under your breath like, well, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. You're going to show us how to succeed against sin. Would, would you would you mumble that? Well, come on. What would you think? Now, if I'm being honest with you, if I'm being 100% honest, and, and I, I know I'm not going to sound spiritual here. I know I'm not going to sound godly, but I'm just going to be honest with you. I would just go, I would almost just, I would probably shake my head, roll my eyes and probably just kind of go, <sighs> Because it, it's the most ridiculous thing to say. And, and from this perspective, listen to me carefully. If you tell everyone that there is a plan, there is a way in which they can succeed against sin, well, then my immediate question would be, how are you defining succeed? How are you defining success? How are you defining being successful or succeeding against sin. Because to me, if I'm going to succeed against sin, if I'm going to be successful in my battle against sin, if I'm going to be victorious over sin, that would imply that I then can reach sinlessness. Because if I'm continuing to sin over and 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 over, and I cannot get to perfection, then that's not succeeding. You can't tell me that I can succeed over sin and yet then turn around and tell me, but you're never going to be perfect. Well, then how is that success? You can say, well, you can have success over that sin. Well, look, on one hand, I, I agree. Great. I can have success over one sin. 
That, on one hand, I understand that, and it's not like I should just throw my hands up and say, well, since I can't succeed over every sin, then I shouldn't care about succeeding over any sin. I understand that. But from a theological perspective, not a practical perspective, not maybe not the life benefits that could come from succeed, you know, being successful over certain sin. So I mean, obviously there are life benefits to staying away from certain sin. I understand that. But from a purely theological standpoint, if I succeed against 10, but I'm still living in a perpetual state of sin, from a theological perspective, I'm no better off. Because the Bible seems to indicate if I'm guilty of one point of the law, I'm guilty of all of it. So at least before God, I'm still a sinner who still needs condemnation and that my salvation cannot be dependent upon anything other than the imputed righteousness of Christ. So from a theological perspective, any success over sin is futile at best because I'm still in a perpetual state of disobedience and still would be under the wrath of God if it wasn't for being saved by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone. Can I take some kind of pride or take a victory lap because I'm successful over one? From a theological perspective, from a practical perspective, I understand the benefits. Now, typically, I'm going to now transition here. I'm going to transition to kind of how would you respond if you heard that? But then I would, I'm going to transition to what if all of a sudden, you know, someone hit pause, the pastor stopped speaking and I walked up to him like, Hey, psst, come here, come here, come here. Hey, before, before the pastor starts talking again, Hey, I, I'm doing i I'm doing a, a betting poll. I'm doing a, like a betting poll here and, and we're going to, and I want you to see if you want to put down a bet for what do you think he's going to say is the way to succeed against sin? What do you think it's going to be? Because typically it's, it goes something like this. If you want to succeed over sin, read your Bible more, study your Bible more, pray more, go to church more, don't watch bad movies and don't listen to bad music. Like, like it's, it, it almost feels like there's just a standard template. So I would, I would probably ask you, hey, put your bed in right now. Uh, what, you, you give me your, your top four things you think they're going to say and how we can succeed over sin. What do you think they are? Go. It would be interesting to see how many people would say, it's the same ones I've heard my entire Christian life. The same things have been preached over and over and over. And guess what? I, don't, I guess we convince ourselves we're successful and we succeed against sin. But the reality is no one's reached perfect perfection. And to me, if you don't reach per perfection, then I don't know how you can pat yourself on the back that you're succeeding against sin. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think you can. But we're going to listen to this. So here's what happened. I have here in front of me the Sword of the Lord newspaper. Yeah, you remember when I told all of you to subscribe to the Sword of the Lord newspaper? Remember I told everyone? Remember? Okay, all right. So I was looking at it and I turned to page 16. And there, it's not a full page ad, but it's a very large ad. And it reads like this. Listen anywhere, Monday through Friday, making a difference radio broadcast. Dr. Shelton Smith, making a difference. And then they have the Apple podcast uh, symbol, the Spotify podcast symbol, 
and they have FBN, FBN radio. And then I don't know what symbol that one is supposed to be, uh, but they, they don't, they don't have anything on there, but clearly it's a radio broadcast, but it's a podcast. And we've talked about it and we've reviewed some episodes before. So I'm like, when I saw that, I put the paper down. I'm like, you know, I haven't looked at that podcast in a while. I opened the Apple podcast app and I went to making a difference and I'm like, okay, oh, that looks interesting. Oh, what do I have here? This is what I saw. I'm going to open up the Apple Podcast app really quick. This is what I, I'm going to click on it. Here we go. It's loading. It's loading. Give me a second. This is what I found. Succeeding against your most stubborn sin, part one. The February 1st, 2024 broadcast our, our podcast episode for Making a Difference radio broadcast with Dr. Shelton Smith from Sword of the Lord. It, it was called Succeeding Against Your Most Stubborn Sin, Part One. So you know immediately what I did. Immediately what I did was, oh, I've got to find this. So I grabbed it, downloaded it. I've uploaded it into the studio software and we're going to listen to at least part one and how to seed, succeed against sin. It's only a two-part kind of mini series that they do. So it's February the 1st, February the 2nd. You should go su uh, subscribe to Making the Difference, uh, Making a Difference podcast from Sword of the Lord uh, because, well, I don't always agree with it, but it's only like 15 minutes. So when you're like busy during the day, you don't have time maybe to do a full-blown Bible study or listen to a full-blown ser sermon, definitely don't have time to listen to the Theology Central podcast that usually goes on for 15 hours. You can uh, listen to a 15-minute kind of message from, uh, well, Dr. Shelton Smith from a Sword of the Lord, right? Making a difference. So if you can't find it, email me. I can send you a link. Just tell me which podcasting app you're utilizing. But I know it's on Spotify. I know it's on Apple Podcasts. And if it's on Apple Podcasts, that typically means it's available in every podcasting app on, you know, the earth. All right. So you should look for it. But I'm ready to go. I, I, again, I have a feeling that I know what to, I'm going to be. What I, I guess what I'm going to look for. This is what I always look for in these kinds of messages. I look for at any point, do they acknowledge that we cannot get to perfection? Right, Because I always find it funny, like you'll listen to these messages, how to be victorious in your Christian life, how to overcome sin, how to break free from this sin. And they give you all of these promises of, of victory and, and being able to, to basically stop sinning. And then somewhere in the message, sometimes they'll just throw in, it's a very, you know, like a passing remark. I mean, you're not going to do it perfectly. I mean, you're always going to sin. All right, but now on to the message. And it's like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's like the, it's like when you listen, uh, when you see an advertisement for medication on television, this medication will take away your headache. Okay. Some side effects are death. You know, your arm will fall off. Your leg will fall off. You, you're, you may be able to no longer talk or breathe, but your headache will be gone. Right? And they just kind of throw in the negative side effects really fast. Duh, 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 duh. But, the, but the rest of the commercial, you know, you see happy people who are walking through the park and walking a dog and, you know, playing, I don't know, tennis and everything. Their life is great because they're taking the medication. Well, it's sometimes the sermons are that way. Hey, you can have victory over sin. You can overcome sin. You can do this. Now, of course, you have to do A, B, C, D, E. Now, 
you'll do these five simple steps, you can overcome sin. Now, wait a minute. Some, the reality is you're still going to sin. Well, wait a minute. I thought you just told me I could overcome. And it's so on one hand, they give you this hope that you can overcome, that you can, you can be, you can succeed against your most stubborn sin. And then at the same time, you have to then do this, do this. You've got to do more things. And then they'll tell you, ultimately, you can't succeed. It's really weird the way the Christian world works this way. And I, what, I guess the weird part is that the preachers don't hear themselves and the people in the pew don't ever stop to go, this makes no sense. I can succeed, but not really. But my success is based on me doing this, 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 this. So I've got to do this right so that I can only get to this level of success. But that level of success will still not get me all the way to success because, well, I'm still going to sin. Now, maybe, now there are some people out there who say you can actually reach the level of sinlessness. Those people are, are really in, in trouble uh, with their being delusional. But I don't know if it ever bothers you, but this stuff drives me crazy. So even though it drives me crazy, if I see a sermon that seems to promise the answer, now I, I am going to be honest with you. I, I, I already go into it a little jaded and a little frustrated and a little angry almost. But at the same time, I hope you do at least acknowledge this. You may not believe it, so maybe you won't acknowledge it. But I do go in hoping, like there is something deep inside of me that truly hopes that one day I'm going to open a Christian book. I'm going to open up the Sword of the Lord newspaper. I'm going to listen to a sermon. And someone out there has the true secret to basically having complete victory over sin. I do want to find the person with the answer. I really do. I just don't think I'm ever going to find it. But are you ready? So let's go to Making a Difference radio broadcast slash podcast from Dr. Shelton Smith, Sword of the Lord newspaper. Here we go. From the international headquarters of the Sword of the Lord Publishers and Ministries here in downtown Murfreesboro, Tennessee, here in the greater Nashville area, in the heart of Tennessee, with Tennessee and the world at heart, this is Making a Difference, and I'm Dr. Shelton Smith. And it is our delight to welcome you today. We're thankful to the Lord that you are along with us, as people are, all across North America and literally around the world. And today, we want to salute some friends who listen in Singapore. Can you imagine? All the way around into Asia and beyond, we have so many people who are listening every day, and we are delighted. And those of you who do listen in Singapore, we send you a full salute, a shout-out today to let you know we're delighted to have you along, and we've seen the record of that on social media sites, and we're just delighted. And welcome aboard. Tell your family and friends to join us as well. And all Now, that is one of the great things about technology is he's broadcasting from the Sword of the Lord headquarters there in Tennessee. 
and his broadcast is being heard by people around the world. Same thing when I look at my statistics. I can look, um, I, I, I haven't looked today, but I think the last I looked just on the Sermons 2.0 Church One platform, we've been heard in 26 different countries. I think it's 26 different countries just in the month of February. I haven't even looked on Spreaker in how many different countries. That is amazing. And once again, I, I, I don't want to, well, I always like connecting all of my different podcast episodes. We just had a big talk about church buildings and cost benefit. It's amazing what a microphone, a computer, and an internet connection, the cost it is to broadcast, how you can be heard by people around the world with just a microphone, a computer, and an internet connection, and, and, and the cost of having a platform to broadcast on. You can be heard literally around the world uh, and for a fraction of the cost that it ha- it takes to have an actual church building and all the upkeep and the maintenance and, and all of the things you have to do. And we've been talking about that. But this is another example. Just a, it's a, it's a small, it's a radio broadcast that only, I think he only broadcasts on the fundamental broadcasting network. That's only one radio station. Now they have, they have their, uh, they're kind of their network, but I mean, it's basically just them. And, uh, you know, they have, they have their affiliates, I guess. So I guess maybe it's multiple radio stations. I guess then if you look at it from that perspective, one radio network, but via their podcast, that can be heard anywhere and everywhere. Anyone who's got access to, you know, a podcasting app. That is amazing and that is awesome. And you know, churches should be taking advantage of such technology, but we're not here to talk about that. He supposedly has the answer and how I can succeed against my most stubborn sin. Let's see where the answer lies. All of you across the world, thank you for being along with us. We get here every day with an open Bible to tell you about the good things of God, and I trust that it'll be a blessing to you every single day. Today, we're going to begin a message that I preached a while back in a service, and it's entitled, Succeeding Against Your Most Stubborn Sin. We all have things that we have to deal with that are pressure points of temptation, and I'm going to give you some things today, and I'm beginning with a very interesting analysis of Psalm 19 and the structure of it, so stick with me here, and we're going to give you some good things today. This is part one, succeeding against your most stubborn sin. Now, he misspeaks there. He says Psalm 19. Clearly, it's not Psalm 19. Clearly, as soon as he said Psalm 19, my first thought was, there's, there's no way. Now, now uh, maybe he said Psalm 119, but it sounds like he says Psalm 19. But clearly it's Psalm 119 because Psalm 19 is about general revelation and special revelation, general revelation and creation, special revelation in the word of God. Okay, great chapter, amazing, a very important chapter. Everyone should know Psalm 19. Psalm 119 is obviously the longest Psalm in the Bible. I think it's the longest chapter in the Bible. And not only that, we know what basically Psalm 119 is about. It's about God's word. So I have a feeling I know where this is going. How to succeed against your most stubborn sin? It's going to be the Bible. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Study the Bible. It's going to be those basic things that are mentioned over and over. But I, I want to I kind of go back and pick up something he said. 
that he's going to do a message on how to succeed against your most stubborn sin, and that we all have these like pressure points of temptation that we struggle with. Let me make it very clear. So many times within the church, this is where I think we always get this so wrong. We tend to view temptation as an external thing, right? That it's an external thing. Oh, okay, if I can avoid that, or if I don't do that, or if I don't do, then I will be free of that temptation. Now, you may be free of that specific temptation if you can avoid it, remove it, end it. But that doesn't mean that that temptation is that specific temptation, but that same kind of temptation is still going to be present. It's still going to be there. Now, you may get rid of something that may end that specific danger, but the sin, the the temptation is still going to be inside of you because the the, the real source of temptation is the sinful nature that that, uh, uh, abides inside of us. Christianity always likes to make the threat external. We always like to see temptation as external. It's internal. The problem is internal. The problem is inside. The problem is you. All right, but we're going to go to Psalm 119. I have a feeling, I could be wrong, but I have a feeling we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 16 would be my bet. Because usually when people talk about struggling against sin, Psalm 119, 9 through 16 usually shows up in the conversation, but he's going to talk about the structure of it. So let's just listen to this. But again, it's not Psalm 19, it's Psalm 119. Now, if he said 119, I I apologize, but to me, it sounded like he said Psalm 19. Um, So it's Psalm 119, unless I'm wrong. Look, if he's if he has a way to do this in Psalm 19, then I definitely want to hear it because I don't think I would ever preach this kind of sermon from Psalm 19, but we'll find out. Here we go. There are many phenomenal things about the Bible. We could give many lectures and probably week after week and not exhaust some of the really amazing things about the Bible. This chapter has a feature to it that is unlike anything else in the Bible or in all of literature. Most of you, if you look at your Bible closely, you'll see that this chapter is divided up into books of eight verses each. The first eight verses are one bunch, then verses 9 through 16, and then verses 17 and so on, eight verses at a time, all the way through. And you will also notice that many of your Bibles will have at the heading of each of those uh, sections It'll have some funny little words, like the first one is the word Aleph, A-L-E-P-H. And the second one is the word Baith, or Beth, you would say it, but it's Baith in the Hebrew. The third one is the word Gimel, and Aleph, and so on. Now, those are the, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The Aleph is the A, and the Baith is the B, and the Gimel is the G, and so on. The interesting feature of this chapter is those first eight verses of the olive section, the first word in each verse begins with an olive. And in the baith section, each of the eight verses begins with a word that begins with a baith. And in the gimel section, and the dollar section, and all the way through the entire Hebrew alphabet. Now let me give you an assignment. You try to write something in English. Eight lines, each line start with a word that begins with an A. The next eight lines, each word begins with a B. 
and the next eight lines, each word begins with a C, all the way to to Z. You write something. We don't care what kind of a mess it is. You're going to have a hard time writing anything, much less something that makes sense. And compound it by the fact that this is written in a poetic fashion. Do you see what I'm driving at? The amazing presentation that the Bible makes for itself. And this is just one little evidence that a super, super kind of a mind put this book together. I read. Now, we could have a a lengthy discussion. Does the structure and the way Psalm 119 is organized, is it so unique and so different that it has never appeared that way in any other, you know, literature? It's never been used that way ever before. This is the only place it's ever used. Is Psalm 119 is the only one that structures where it takes all of these words, breaks them down into sections of eight verses, and each verse begins with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Is this the only example of that? Now, that if you if you want a little research project today, that's what I want you to research. I want you to research the structure of Psalm 119 and ask and find out is this the only place that shows up in history? Like the only the only recorded example of this kind of structure is Psalm 119 or has it shown up in other works of literature? Religious, secular, is is this so unique? Because he's arguing it that it's proof that this was put together by a divine mind, that the structure here is proof of divine inspiration. Now, he, he doesn't mention whether it, it, it ever shows up anywhere else, but I want I want you to see what you can find today. And whoever can find it first, please email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com because I, I right now at this moment, I don't even have that answer. Remember, I always review these without listening to them first. So I can't, you know, I can't be prepared every single time to give an answer, but I can always raise the question here. So in some cases in the reviews, I just do more raising questions than providing answers. But here we go. I mean, I, 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 I mean, if it's true that this is the only place that, that anything like this ever shows up is right here. In in Psalm 119, this is the only time where we have an entire chapter of literature, right, or a poetry, where every letter or or the the sections are broken down into eight stanzas or eight verses, and that each one begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, Aleph, Aleph, uh, Baith, Gemal, uh, Daleth, you know, and on and on and on. Like, if, if, is that, is, how unique is this? How truly unique is this structure? Okay, I, I, I want to start researching it right now, but, but well, remember our goal here is not to get into that. Our goal right now is to try to figure out he supposedly has the answer to how we can be successful, how we can succeed against our most stubborn sin. But yeah, so if you find the answer, email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Whoever finds the answer first, I can promise you fame and no, I can't really promise you anything, but I, I, it, it would be great to see what you discover. All right, but let, let's continue. Here we go. Verses 9 and following, which is the Baith section. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. 
Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. With my lips have I declared all the judgments of thy mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. All right, a couple of things. First, I told you I thought it was going to be 9 through 16. I told you. Because if I, I mean, I, this is a pretty standard passage being preached in, a, it sounds like it's going to be in a pretty standard way. You give the basic structure of the psalm, all right, and then you go to this section, and then this section is the section about how to, well, succeed against sin. This is going to, I, I also, another thing I want to point out, I do love, like, um, just depending on where people are from, the different ways of of saying things, he call uh, he uh, uses the word. Where is it? If I can find it, um, verse twelve, Psalm one nineteen twelve. Blessed art thou, O Lord. Teach me thy. He calls them statutes, 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 statutes. So yeah, it's interesting when you hear people say things in a different way. I, I don't know if I would. I would call statutes. I wouldn't statutes. I don't know if I would say it that way. Right. So it's. Is it, I, yeah, so I, have I been wrong? Statutes or statuettes? Have I been saying it wrong my entire time? See, now now I will I will second guess myself. I, it's statutes, right? It's not statuettes, right? Or it, can you say it two different ways? I don't know. All right. So I always just catch that. I'm not to pick on anybody else. I always catch it because it always makes me question myself because I know how frequently I say things in an incorrect way. I trust me. I I I always realize how how much I do that. All right, here we go. The passage begins by asking the question, how by what means wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? And then the rest of the verses that I have just read proceed to give an answer to that question. Okay, so his outline for Psalm 119, 9 through 16 is this. How shall a young man, how shall a young woman, how shall an old man, how shall a young man cleanse his way? How shall you cleanse your way? And then the rest of the verses lay out the plan, lay out the strategy, lay out the answer. Do you want to cleanse your way? Now, first of all, this this would and now if we go with this approach, let's make it very clear. If you want to cleanse your way, that means succeeding against your most stubborn sin. If you want to succeed against sin, the responsibility becomes yours and you have to do everything listed after if you want to cleanse your way. If you want to cleanse your way, you must do the following. That is the way he outlines it, okay? I'm going to go here. Uh, someone. Okay, all right. Someone said that they, uh, they, they, they haven't heard it that way, uh, and they say they think I'm right. Well, don't, no, no, I don't say I'm right, because when it comes to saying words correctly, I'm almost never right, okay? I'm never right. All right, so, all right, so, so but, no, thank you, thank you. All right, but, so, just make sure we understand this. If you want to cleanse your way, Here's the plan, ladies and gentlemen. Here's the strategy. Here's how you can succeed against your most stubborn sin. And it's all 
on you. It's all your responsibility. So then you see how this kind of then works, right? Hey, you could succeed against sin. Now, first of all, if you're going to say you can succeed, succeed against sin, you have to at least, if you're going to say you can, to me, you have to then acknowledge sinlessness, sinless perfection is possible. The problem is, is you. Because you can't say you can, you can succeed against sin and then tell me that you can't be sinless because that's not succeeding. All right, so then, so you would have to acknowledge you can, you can make it all the way to sinlessness. The problem is you don't do all of these things. And then the question would be, well, how come no one has ever done these things? But let's see how he's going to handle all of this. Let me preface our examination of this with these statements. Becoming a Christian does not mean that you become perfect. I'm always amazed at people who think they can work their way to heaven by doing good. I have to ask them, how much good do you have to do if you're going to go to heaven by being and doing good? Nobody seems to know the answer to that question, but they seem to think that somehow, by the doing of good, they'll be able to accumulate enough to offset whatever bad they may have done. Interestingly enough, that is a man-made, designed plan and schedule. It's not found in the Bible at all. And whenever you come to, to salvation and you become a new creature in Christ, it's all together by the mercy and grace of God. You put your faith in Christ and God gives it to you. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve it when you get it. You don't deserve it after you've got it. You didn't deserve it then. You don't deserve it now. And you won't deserve it tomorrow. But you're saved not because of your just deserts, but because of the wonderful blessings of the mercy and the grace of God. And even though your soul is saved and you're secure in Christ and uh, you're saved and you'll not be lost because Christ saves you and makes you one of his children and keeps you saved, but that does not mean that you are perfect. It does not mean that you're without flaw. It does not mean that you'll always say and do and think the right things. In fact, as a Christian, you need to understand that you are still a being in the flesh. And even though your soul is redeemed, we await the redemption of the body. Okay, so he has started off. Now, the, remember, the title of this is Succeeding Against Your Most Stubborn Sin. And he's already now acknowledged that success cannot be defined as sinless perfection because you cannot reach it. <laughs> so do you see, do you, I, I, does anyone else find this then maddening? Hey, I'm going to teach you how to succeed against sin, but you're never going to succeed to this level. So then we look for success as something less than sinlessness, something less than perfection. Well, then here's the question. How do I measure success when I cannot get to sinlessness? I cannot get to sin. I cannot get to sinlessness. I cannot get to holy perfection. If I can't get there, so then I'm measuring success by what? How am I measuring success? Now, now do I start measure, measuring success simply by the external things in which I can stop doing? Well, then is that success if internally I still have this problem or this problem or this problem? Or do I start kind of finding a new way to measure success so that I convince myself that even externally I'm doing much better than I actually am? Now, at least he's acknowledging we can't get to perfection. 
So immediately then, his idea of succeeding against sin has got to have a very limited meaning. It's got to have a very limit. He's defining succeeding in a way that clearly isn't, well, it's not perfection. So let's see. I don't know if he's going to explain how then do we measure this. I think what he's going to do is just start going through the steps. Let's see what the steps are. The flesh is still the flesh. And the flesh will still flare up and show its fault. Sometimes, if not oft times. Now, this is no justification for sin. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. It doesn't just flare up sometimes or oft times. It flares up continually. See, this is always blows my mind how Christians some, somehow convince themselves that there's periods where the flesh doesn't show itself. The flesh is manifesting itself 24-7. It shows up in your thinking. It shows up in your speech. It shows up in your desires. It shows up in what you do externally and what you're thinking, desiring, and wanting to do internally. It shows up in the actions done and in the, in the actions that are left undone. It is a continual problem. That's why every day we can stand before God and say, Lord, I have sinned and thought word and deed by what I have done and what I have left undone. Even my good works are nothing but filthy rags before a holy God. I am nothing but a beggar. I have nothing but sin to bring to you. But for some reason, we always try to minimize it. I mean, it may flare up sometime. Now, I agree. It's no excuse for sin. I, I, I got no problem saying it's, we should not use this reality to excuse our sin. All I'm saying is we have to have a better understanding of the reality. Look, I'm not excusing my sin. But the reality is I'm a sinner, okay? A big one. Now, you may sit there and go, well, I don't know what your problem is. Okay, well, okay, you convince yourself. You play the game. You wear those fig leaves proudly. Cover yourself in the fig leaves. Get you a, a nice looking robe of self-righteousness. Judge everyone else. Condemn everyone else. Be arrogant. Be condescending. Be a jerk. You'll fit right in with a large portion of Christianity. But sooner or later, one day you're going to realize you're not as good as you think you are. It is not a justification that should make us content with any kind of violation of God's plan or God's law that we ever do. We ought never be content with ourselves whenever we are not doing what we ought to do. We ought never to be happy with the flesh when it expresses itself inappropriately. We the only problem is that we'll never be happy about anything because we are constantly in a state of sin. I don't, this is the thing that drives me crazy about Christians. Why can't we just admit it? We, because we have to reduce sin to the most egregious external acts. But so many times when you look at the Bible and it gives you different lists of sins, it goes every, it, it can be something as covetousness, pride, idolatry, placing anything before God. We don't even have to get to an egregious external bitterness, 
unforgiveness. You're supposed to be loving even your enemy. Anything less than loving your enemy is a sin. You're supposed to be loving your neighbor as yourself. You're supposed to be putting other people before you. You're still supposed to be showing selflessness instead of selfishness. If you don't realize you are in a perpetual state of sin, I don't know what to do. Now, yeah, should we be unhappy with it? Yes. And guess what that unhappiness should do? It should drive us to the foot of the cross and say, only because of your imputed righteousness, is there any hope? And then find peace and hope, not in me trying to be better, but in Christ being perfect and his perfection covering me. Because anything else will just drive you to the point of utter madness and insanity, or it will lead you to a life of perpetual deceiving yourself and thinking you're better than you are. All right. Let's let's see where it's going to go here. I'm I'm waiting for some answers. I, I do. I am very grateful though. He's acknowledging now. He he's playing down how sinful we are. He's playing it down a little bit, but at least he's acknowledging you're not getting to sinlessness. You're not getting to perfection. At least he's acknowledging where we can't go, but he's still trying to play to. I mean, sometimes it will flare up. So, not sometimes. It's always there. We ought to be constantly of discontent about whatever deficiency that we may have. The flesh, however, you need to understand, you'll be less frustrated with yourself if you'll understand that the flesh is flawed and faulty, but the same God who saved you at the start also has a plan and provision for helping you to constantly cleanse and refresh yourself over and over and over again. Okay, now, so, all right, so the God who saved you, he has a plan to fix this flesh problem. Now, see, this is what always confounds and confused me about the Christian world. Well, wait a minute. If God's plan, he has a plan to help me with my flesh, well, then why can't I not reach sinlessness? Are you, you're telling me God has a plan, but God's plan is not for me ever to get to sinlessness or to get to perfection, but that God wants to help me. So he only wants to help me reach what? what? What's the plan? The plan is not sinlessness. The plan is not perfection, but the plan is to cleanse me. I mean, not complete cleansing. I mean, he wants me still to remain somewhat dirty. So God wants me to remain somewhat dirty. Or are you going to tell me God gives you everything you can to get to perfection, but I can't get to perfection because of me. Either God's plan is for me never to get to perfection. So stop trying to act like it does. Or are you telling me that, that the steps God's going to give can't get me to perfection? So there's a limit to like, Where's the problem here? Well, the problem is you. Okay, so it's just me. So I can get to perfection. Well, no, you can't get to perfection. Well, then the problem isn't me. Is it God's plan? Well, no, the problem isn't God's plan. Why can we not achieve sinlessness? Why are we in a perpetual state of sinfulness? You see, as a Christian, and hear me carefully now, but as a Christian, you can commit any of the sins that the world commits. You should not. You ought to resist it. You ought to determine to clean up your act and do everything that you can to be as close to the Savior as you possibly can. But you can, in fact, commit any sin that can be committed out in the world. Now, I love that. 
We can commit any sin that is out in the world. We can commit any sin that is out in the world. I want you to write that down. Do you believe that a Christian can commit any sin that is happening in the world? Any sin, any sin. Now, when I say any sin, I'm going to throw out, I'm going to throw out some that's going to absolutely tell what most Christians would say would prove you're not saved. Are you ready for this? Can you commit the sin of homosexuality? Most Christians you know will say no. A Christian cannot commit the sin of homosexuality because if they do, they prove they were never saved. However, they will believe you can commit the sin of fornication. Homosexuality out, fornication in. Fornication, you can still be a Christian. Homosexuality, you can't. Wait, wait, what just happened here? Let me see what else. Can you commit the, well, we'll, we'll refer to it in this way. Can you commit the sin of, we'll say, transgenderism? No, you cannot. Are you sure? I thought we can commit any sin. Can you commit murder? How about the sin of, oh, now this is where it's going to get very un- uncomfortable. Can a Christian find themselves committing the sin of being a pedophile? No, 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 cannot, 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 cannot. Wait, what sins can we commit? Because many Christians have in their mind that there's some sins a Christian cannot commit because if they commit that, they prove they were never saved. Now, if you're saying that there's sins you can't commit, well, then you would argue that God then when he saves you, gets you to a certain point that you can never commit these sins. Well, if God can get you to a point where you will never commit these sins, why doesn't God just get you to a point where you can never commit any sin? Why is it that God will get you that you can never commit this list of 10 sins, but but you still can commit the list of these 20 sins? Clearly, Christians can still be proud, arrogant, lying, gossips, slanders, backstabbing, resentful, unforgiving, unloving. I can go all day and all the sin. Covetous, idolaters. Christians can be committing all of these sins. But why is it there's some sins where like, no, 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 no. A Christian cannot commit that. Wait, wait, are you sure? That's a very important question. What sins can a Christian commit? Now, if a Christian can commit any sin, then that means anyone, pastor, deacon, elder, Sunday school teacher, choir director, youth director, there is no sin that they cannot commit. Do we really believe that? Now, again, some Christians would say, no, 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 there's, there, that if you commit this sin. Now, some say, well, you could commit it once, but if you commit it in a, you know, 30 times or 40 times, if it's an ongoing thing, you prove you're not saved. Well, wait a minute. So if I commit this sin in an ongoing way, I prove that I'm not saved, but I'm continuing to sin on an ongoing way. So I can continue to sin all the time and still be saved. But if I commit this specific sin on, on a continual basis, then I'm not saved. See how, how just this is so inconsistent. It's so subjective the way Christians play these games. Now, I, I, I completely agree with him. There is no sin that a Christian cannot commit. There is no sin that is beyond my ability to commit it. Even if I don't even think I could ever get there, I could. Now, if you say, well, the only reason I don't commit this sin and this sin is because God keeps me from it. Well, then why does God just keep you from all of them? 
Like we say things and then we never think of the, the taking it to its logical conclusion. All right. So I, I, I'm in agreement with, I think that's a statement you really need to write down, have the conversation amongst yourselves, bring it up in Sunday school. I, I, I dare you ask people in your church, just walk around to take a clipboard to church. Uh, the next time you're at church and, and well, it's third, it'll be Sunday before, you know, and just ask people, Hey, are there some sins a Christian cannot commit? And report back to me what you find. I'm always asking people to walk around church asking questions. Nobody ever sends me the, the audio or the video or their, their clipboard, a picture of their clipboard with all the answers. But nobody ever, I'm telling you, I want you to walk around church asking these questions. I don't, I don't say this just because I have nothing to say because I'm always curious what the people in the pew actually think. I mean, because what? How, because if it's a pastor asking the people in the pew, they try to answer the question based on what they think the pastor wants to say. But when it's a, a, a just another church member asking, sometimes they'll be much more honest, and I think you can get to some honest answers. I don't think most Christians believe that Christians can commit any sin. They may say it until you start naming certain sins, and they'll be like, "Well, no, 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 that's a bridge too far." Oh, okay. Okay, I, I, I see. Look, for instance, in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19 has the list of the works of the flesh. Remember Galatians, from our studies recently in Galatians, is written to Christians, it's written about Christians, it's written for Christians. And it shows us the contrast between a spiritual Christian and a carnal Christian. And the works of the flesh, he lists in verse 19 and following. Oh, he just used the word carnal Christian. Now, immediately, just so that you know, lordship salvation rejects the existence of carnal Christians. They say they do not exist. There is no such thing that if you're a carnal Christian, you're simply proving you were never saved, meaning you're only a Christian in profession only. You don't actually possess Christ because if you truly possess Christ, you would not be a carnal Christian which just cracks me up because I've known plenty of people who believe in lordship and they've got plenty of ongoing sin in their life, but they can't see it. They won't, they'll, they'll act like pretend that they're passing some arbitrary test, which they're not even passing the test or being remotely honest with themselves, right? I know lordship Christians. Do you love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? Come on, come on. Well, no, not not perfectly. Oh, well, you're in sin. Are you holy as God is holy? No. Okay. Well, uh, you're in sin. Do you love your neighbors? Okay. You're. I can go. Do you love your enemy? I. I okay. You're in sin. Well, I know, but I'm not. But I'm not carnal. Well, what, then how do you express carnality? Wouldn't carnality mean you're of the flesh? You're in the flesh, and you continue to manifest the reality of said flesh. You say, well, no, 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 no. I've been set free from the flesh. Well, then you should be sinless. Well, I can't be sinless. Meaning something controls you and holds you back. I wonder what that could be. I wonder, I wa oh, could it be you still have a sinful nature and you still live in the flesh? As adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murderers, drunkenness, revelings, and such like of the which, he said, I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not enter, are you reading with me? Shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, 
A lot of folks want to read that and say, oh, if you commit any of those sins, you could not enter into heaven. That's not what the passage says. It is not talking about our possession of heaven, but it's talking about the inheritance. It's talking about our reward. It's talking about what we shall have in terms of reward in heaven. Okay, now I'm not, I'm not a fan of that re- rendering. That, 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 that he says, hey, if you do these things, you're not, you're going to get into heaven, but you're not going to, you're, you're not going to inherit certain things. Well, I'm, I'm a joint heir. I'm a co-heir with Christ. So I'm going to inherit everything he has. I think the point is that whenever these sins, those who do these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And that is true. Those who do these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God, meaning I shouldn't inherit the kingdom of God. You shouldn't inherit the kingdom of God. So then what, how, then what's my hope? See, this should show me my sin because we commit these things in thought, word, and deed. So then what's my answer? This is the law that condemns. What does it demonstrate? Well, when I commit these sins, it demonstrates that I should not inherit the kingdom of God. But guess what? In Christ, I don't commit these things because in Christ, I am perfect. I am holy. In Christ, guess what? In Christ, I have never committed adultery. I've never committed fornication. I've never committed uncleanliness. I've never committed lasciviousness. I've never committed idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresy, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelings. I've not done any of those things in Christ. In practice, I'm guilty. I'm a, I'm a sinner. I deserve to go to hell. And here's the thing. Clearly, clearly, after it lists these sins, clearly Christians can commit them because when you go to chapter six, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. That what, Overtaken in a fault, overtaken in these sins that I think mentioned in chapter five. Now he wants to argue, hey, you will not inherit the kingdom. He's not he 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 wants to say that's not about getting to heaven, that's about our inheritance or our reward. But it uses the word inheritance. And I'm and I am a joint heir with Jesus Christ. So I'm not I'm not a fan of of that approach. I think the approach is this is true statement. If you commit these things, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh me, what's my hope? to put my faith in Jesus Christ, that I am saved by his obedience and his imputed righteousness. And in Christ, none of those things are me. In my position, I'm a new creature. The old is gone. All is, all is new. I'm perfect. In practice, I'm still a sinner. That's where Christians seem to struggle so much with these concepts. Very clearly, it says that. Now, what I'm saying is that these things ought not to be a part of the Christian's life, but your flesh has the potential to commit any or all of those sins even after you're saved. And I quickly point out that these works of the flesh are not acceptable, they're not commended, but they all are all possible. To keep your life clean is the goal of every Christian's life. And I would not have to interview very many people in this room tonight even just a few would illustrate it very carefully, that the Christian life is a struggle. It is a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. The flesh warring against the spirit and the spirit warring against the flesh, the Bible says. And some of us struggle with one thing and some of us struggle with another. But there's always a struggle. There are some of you that remember a day in your life whenever that you did not live a day without 
indulging in some kind of intoxicating beverage. You came to Christ, you laid it aside, and you look at it now, and sometimes you glance in that direction and you see it, but you would not even think of going in that direction because it's a settled matter for you, and you never again would go that route. There are others who have had that same experience and who every time they pass a bottle, every time they pass an old bent-up beer can on the street somewhere, there's something that flashes through their mind, and it's, it's like a magnet and they have to resist it every single time that they get anywhere in the neighborhood where it is. There are others who have other kinds of things that, that they must deal with. Always a struggle. And so tonight we're talking about how to succeed over the most stubborn sin in your life. And with everybody, I think it would be fair to say that there is one or more sins that are so stubborn that we struggle and struggle and we sometimes succumb. And then we submit and we repent and then we struggle again and we fail and we submit and we repent again. The Bible has a great deal to say about how we are to be and as well as how we actually are. For instance, you read in Psalm 51, and the Bible talks there about a clean heart. It admonishes a clean heart. It says we ought to be of a clean heart. But the question that I raise is, if we should have a clean heart, how can we have a clean heart? I can read in Isaiah 52, and I learned there, God places a strong premium upon the importance of staying clean before God, and that if we are to be of use in the service of God, it is important that we be clean and stay clean and keep clean before God. And we look at that in Isaiah 52, 11, and we say, God wants us to be clean. How can we be clean? In Jeremiah when we talk about being clean, how clean can we be? We, the, the, the reality is we never can be truly clean. We need a clean heart, but we don't ever have a clean heart. Now, some Christians believe you have a clean heart, but if you have a clean heart, then do you, do you have a clean heart but the old nature? Or do you have a, do you have a clean heart and it? Like, nobody can ever seem, I, we've talked about this before, diagram exactly what we should look like, right? Do we have a clean heart and a new nature, but at the same time, we still have our old nature and the old heart? So do we have two hearts, two natures? Or heart and nature, are they synonymous? Well, if we have a new heart and a new nature, we still have the old nature, there's no way to get around it. So even, even if you say, and if you say, no, 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 the old nature is gone, the old heart is gone, everything is new. Even if you say that, clearly then it's not true because then we should be able to reach sinless perfection. And we can't. So therefore, there's something holding us back. What is that? Chapter 17, the Bible tells us, reminds us of how, how we are when it, when it says that the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, who can know it? God says we ought to have a clean heart, and yet He says the heart is desperately wicked. How can we take this desperately wicked heart and clean it up and change it and get it to be what it ought to be? How? 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 I read in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And immediately I raise the question, how can we gain this purity? How can we have this purity of heart that God wants us to have? Some of you will think immediately of the passage in Romans chapter 7. That passage says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. He said, I, I want to do it, but boy, I just don't find the way to do it. For the good that I would... I do not. 
But the evil which I would not, that I do. You've been there. You say, that's the thing that's good. I ought to do that. But somehow I wind up doing the bad thing. And the bad thing that I know that I should not do, that's the very thing I wind up doing. It goes on to say, now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Well, we'll have to interrupt there today. Dear friends, thank you for being along. I trust this. All right. And we'll stop right there. Go look up Make a Difference podcast from Sword of the Lord, Dr. Shelton Smith. We're going to obviously have to review part two because we didn't get any answers, did we? But he's at least acknowledging the reality of our problem. But he seems to think that there's a way that we can somehow clean up the up. We, we can't clean. We can't ever truly clean up this old nature, no matter how much we want to. Our hope has to be in imputed righteousness and our hope has to be in our positional standing. Now, we do need to fight against the old. But then we have to acknowledge that there's going to be a limit to what we can or can't do. That's something that we'll have to talk about. I've thrown out lots of ideas, lots of concepts. We've gone well over an hour, or at least I know we've gone... Yes, we, I think we've been broadcasting over an hour. I got kind of the, the pre-show there that doesn't really count. So about at an hour. So I will just stop right there. I leave that all with you. I would love for you to send me your thoughts on all of this to newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. You can send me any questions you may have and we will try to review part two. I don't think we'll get to it today, uh, but we'll try to review it tomorrow. All right, we'll, def- we'll definitely try to finish this up tomorrow. Remember, we're still in our 21 days and the minor prophets for the Sermons 2.0 app challenge. Hopefully, you've been participating. If you haven't, just grab the Sermons 2.0 app. You can download it from the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store. Download it and then just go, just do a search for a sermon. Go just, you know, you can put the minor prophets. And just grab just a random one. You don't look for the type of church or the name of the preacher. Or you can just go through the individual books of the Minor Prophets, starting with Hosea. You can go, you can just go through them. And I've got one set up right here on Hosea. I have one right here. Welcome to Bible Believers Fellowship in the ministry of BBFOhio.com as we begin our study of the book of Hosea. So we're going to review that sometime soon. Um, but I, I wanted to get to that today, but I thought, you know what? I'll do this really short broadcast on succeeding against sin because, you know, I'm only reviewing like, you know, 10 minutes of audio. So, you know, it'll be like a 30 minute program and then I can move on. Well, yeah, see that didn't work. So can you imagine trying to review that sermon on Hosea? That's I think like an hour long. You can see, well, then that will turn into like five hours of broadcasting. So, but I thought this little 10 minute audio was going to be like, you know, 30 minutes, but you know, there we go. But I've given you plenty to think about, hopefully. So I'd love to get your thoughts. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. I wish I had a better answer to tell you how to succeed against sin. I'm going to end with this. The only true success we will ever have in sin, against sin, with sin, is not in what you do. It's not in what you don't do. It's not in how hard you work or how little you work. The only success you will ever have, the only way you'll ever succeed against sin is by faith in the perfect righteousness of Christ that is imputed to you by faith 
and you will succeed against sin in your positional standing before God. That is where you will succeed against sin. Practically, oh, we can look for ways to be more successful. We can we can look for ways to try to achieve some, but we're always going to be in some, we're going to be in a perpetual state of sin, no matter how much we want to deny it. That's a reality because you know the reason I know we're going to be in a perpetual state of sin practically because God demands perfection and you're not it and I'm not it. Thanks for listening. God bless.